Why don't we turn to Acts chapter 2 and verse 40 and we'll read together. Why don't we stand? And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept them exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, continually with one mind, in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having a favor with people. And the, and the Lord was adding to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Is he seated? In 1973, Billy Graham was on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. At the end of the, the, end of the interview, after he spoke about his long extensive tour that he'd been on and where he was going, Johnny asked him a really important question. He said, what is the single most question you ever get asked, Billy? And Billy said, well, I suppose it's how do I find God? That makes sense, based on who Billy Graham is and what his ministry was. But then he added this comment. Probably, Billy said, the biggest problem people write me about is how to deal with loneliness. 1973, 50 years ago. Brenda Colleen, in her book titled Images of Salvation in the New Testament, in her research, found an article from 2006 in the Washington Post. She it reported a study that found that the social isolation of Americans was rapidly increasing. 25% of Americans reported they had no one to confide in. Now you might think, well, that's not too bad. Well, it is when, when the same report was released in 1985 and only about 12 and a half percent reported that. So in 20, um, in 25 years or 30 years, that number had doubled. Well, praying on the streets last summer, we ran into a man who came for prayer. He happened to work at AHS. And when he came up to us, we spoke with him for a while. And we asked him how he was doing. And he said, I have tons of anxiety right now. And I'm really stressed out. Turned out that he was the one who received phone calls for crisis, the crisis line. He had said that mental health had decreased, or the, um, actually, let me rephrase it. His, his phone calls had increased as a, as a crisis intervention and up to 400% during the COVID season, over 400% in calls. What was the main problem during that time? Isolation and loneliness. I had no reason to doubt him, but I wondered if the stat was exaggerated a little. Well, about two or three days later, I go to a boys' school, and I end up speaking to a TA who used to work as an officer with the RCMP. I knew her and her partner, and Sharon, you trained them, 
so you know who I'm talking about, but they were partners at the gym, both uh, worked at RCMP. One now had become a TA, and I was speaking to her and asking her, how was your partner doing? Is she still working in the RCMP? And she said, yes. And I said, how is she doing? And she says, well, it's been really, really difficult for her over the last couple of years. And I asked her why, and she says, well, the amount of phone calls she's received as an officer to show up randomly at people's homes to deal with crisis and intervention had increased by over 400%. What was the number one crisis? People were just going crazy and loneliness and isolation. So as you know, we're doing a series on what is the gospel? What is God's good news? Well, here's where the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes so amazing and so incredible. It actually provides an answer to what is one of our culture's greatest needs, the need for community. This is an overarching theme in the scriptures. And hear me clearly when I say this, that even though our relationship with God is something we experience on a personal level, the way God intended us to live out our salvation is with others in community. Salvation, while profoundly personal, is unavoidably social. Persons are not saved in isolation, but into the people of God. To be fully what God intended, one must not live autonomously, but persons in relationship. Before we look at our main text, I want to show you three images from the scriptures that demonstrate the social nature of our gospel, that we're designed to live in community. And in all of these examples, they're in the scriptures as an image of what it means to be safe. So what does it look like to be saved? Your personal relationship with God, how does that also, how was that reflected? Okay, one image of community in the scriptures is covenant relationship. So what is a covenant? It's a formal agreement between two parties in which both parties agree to uphold the fixed terms. You often see covenant relationships in the Bible as between two individuals. So for example, Jacob and Laban in Genesis 31 make a pact, a covenant. They agree to separate from one another and to respect each other's boundaries. But what's important for us this morning is that almost all of God's covenants are corporate in nature, meaning they are meant to impact communities, even if they're made with one individual. So Abraham in Genesis 12 was given a personal, individual covenant with God and a blessing. But when you read that blessing, it was clearly meant to bless others. This blessing was to him and his descendants afterwards, to the nation of Israel. So this was not just simply about one's own individual relationship with God, but an emphasis on how God was to impact that community through the covenant. This is a really powerful quote from Brenda Colby. Unlike modern Western cultures, which view people as primarily individuals, both Old and New Testament cultures view people primarily as members of a family or tribe, 
and only secondary, secondarily as individuals. People were deeply embedded in their social context, and they believed that the true personhood consisted of being dependent on others, especially those in authority. The actions of each person reflected on the group whose interest and honor took priority over those of the individual. Corporate identity superseded individual identity. Where else do we see this kind of thing in the scriptures? We see it actually even in John 15 in Jesus' own use of describing eternal life. This is the famous passage in John 15 about the vine and the branches. You should read the whole thing, 1 to 11, but I give you one verse. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. What's the vine and the branches? It's a picture of a relationship with God. It's actually about Jesus being the way in which you receive eternal life. It's really clear that it's all eternal life. What's important, though, is that you'd think, therefore, that there'd be one branch and one vine, and one branch and one vine, and one branch and one vine. That's not what he says. He says there's one vine and many, many branches. So each individual branch, each Christian, makes a personal decision to follow Jesus. But when you're in the vine, who are you connected with outside of Jesus? Other branches. And so each branch individually is connected to the vine, who are also connected to each other. So salvation in Christ is not only to be with him, but to be with others in community with him. An incredible image. One more. The Christian as the new self. What Paul does here is he paints a picture of each individual believer as undergoing a wardrobe change. Every believer is undergoing a wardrobe change. Old clothes taken off, new clothes put on. So let's read this. Set your hearts on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Rid your saws of anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self. As God's chosen people, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. And put on love, which binds them all together. So what we learn here is there's moral implications, an individual responsibility to God for how you're to live. You're basically to take off the old self, all these old behaviors, and put on the new. But what's significant about this passage, this is more than just about you and God. This is more than just you and God. In verse 15, he makes this concluding comment. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. So, you hear what Paul's saying? You individually have to take off the old, all the sinful desires, put on the new. But this is more than just about you and God. This is about, this is because of how you, those old 
patterns are going to impact the entire community. And if you put on new clothes and have these other virtues, think about how that would impact the community. So again, we see over and over these images in the Bible where it's not just about you and the Lord. It's about you and your community, and God intended you to exist in community because that is his ideal and his best. We are not saved in isolation, but into the body of Christ, the people of God. Now, we haven't even dove into the passage yet, but already these three images speak to the social nature of the gospel and our critical challenge to the Western Canadian culture. We place a high value on individualism. We try to make something of, the self, of ourselves. It's my truth, my rights, my space, my stuff. Here God stresses the importance of seeing self as part of a larger picture. To be fully what God intends is not to be autonomous, but to be people in relationship where you actually care about the decisions you make and the truth you hold and how it impacts the community around you. For the believer, this is the inclusion into the church community and is centered around one person, one truth, and that is Jesus Christ. We all mold to him. So why is church community so important? Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. The day approaching, of course, is the second coming of Jesus Christ. But why is it important? He says, by meeting together regularly, you can spur one another on. Those of you who enjoy horses know exactly what this image portrays. It's actually kind of cool. The Greek word for spur is actually to, is sharp. So it's sharp. So you know, you're kind of, uh, when the horse doesn't want to move, and doesn't want to obey, you just give him a quick, sharp uh, pick with the heel, and next thing you know, it's spurred, and it wants to do what you want it to do. So we're to spur one another on. The community is to spur one another on, and that is, makes total sense because we actually need a jab once in a while to get out of our complacency. Times when we don't want to persevere, we get someone spurs us or gives us a kick, and it jolts us into action. So again, spurring one another on is an integral part of church community. We're also to encourage one another. Encourage, and that makes total sense because perseverance is one of the biggest themes in the New Testament. One of the biggest themes in the New Testament is repetitive over and over in every book is this need to persevere. And we can understand why, because it's so easy to just want to give up and throw up our hands. And so we need our community to strengthen us and to help us persevere in following the Lord. Many times in my own life, it's been through the community of Genesis House that I've been able to get through tough times. And I know that you can say the same for yourself. And so why is it so important again? Because our problem too is that our default is not God's way. We have flesh living with the Spirit, and the flesh always wants to take us away from God. We truly are like sheep. And so Hebrews recognizes this earlier. This 
This is what he says. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ and be reformed in our original conviction from the end. I love this passage because it's just a stark warning, right? Brothers and sisters, that's spiritual brothers and sisters. Take care that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. And this is really powerful because, again, the writer of Hebrews recognizes that's a possibility for us. And so, no wonder later, seven chapters later, he says, please meet together regularly. Meet together regularly because this is a reality for every Christian and you need the community. And it's a massive correlation. What's the correlation between encouragement, between being spurred on, between not falling away and having an unbelieving heart. The correlation is this. You better not give up meeting together as some of you are in the habit of doing. So what's the opposite correlation suggest? Or not suggest, just absolutely demonstrate. By meeting together regularly, you will not get into that temptation. Or if you are, you're likely to overcome it because of the community around you. Again, it's not just about a relationship with Christ one-on-one, -on -one, although that's foundational and important. God created us to be in community as a way of helping us persevere and grow. So what components are valuable to making up a healthy community? Well, this is where we turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. It gives a valuable insight into what makes a church a church and what produces growth. So we'll just read this together in verse 40, uh, 42 to start. It says there, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, I want you to notice something here first before we get into these four components. Yes, they were deeply committed to certain spiritual disciplines, but I want you to notice two words. What, what was an important aspect or characteristic of these people? Number one, it says that they were devoted to. They were devoted to. So the word devotion in English is the same as Greek. It means to be persistent, to be steadfast, to constantly adhere to something. They were living in opposition to the Hebrew believers that were being warned. They were obviously not meeting together regularly, but these people here were. They were devoted to the cause, the community cause. And we get a further description of this in verse 46. It says that day by day, they were meeting in the temple in each other's homes. Day by day, in the temple, and being in each other's homes. So correlated to us, day by day, they met at the art pack and in each other's homes. Not once a month, not once a week, continuous. What makes this so remarkable, though, is to remember who it was that was gathering. Now, in verse 42, 
it says the word they. In verse 44, it describes them as all those who had believed. So we just say, well, duh, of course it's the Christians they're talking about. That is a true statement. But remember what happened before this event and where these people came from. And when we see this, we're going to see the significance of who they were. Beginning in chapter 2, Jerusalem is buzzing with an influx of tourists. They had come for an annual Jewish feast of, of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit had just fallen on the people in Jerusalem. And in response to those who had witnessed this event, Peter gives a sermon. And in verse 41, it tells us that 3,000 souls were added that day. 3,000 souls. Where did the 3,000 come from? Turn back to verse 7 with me. This is really, really significant. Let's read verse 7. First of all, these are the people, the people are amazed and astonished by hearing people speak in their languages, even though they're Galileans. So why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the districts of Libya, around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Christians and Arabs, and they're all hearing them speak in, these, in their tongues. After this, all these people were pierced to the heart by his sermon. He said, what do we do? He says, repent and believe and be baptized. They are, and 3,000 souls are added. This is awesome. Different ethnicities, different cultures, different languages, different religious backgrounds, different status in society, different education, different wealth, different jobs, different personalities. Yet they, couldn't, they could not get more diverse. You couldn't get more diverse than this. In fact, many of these people would have had nothing to do with each other in regular life. Think about that statement. These people would have nothing to do with each other in regular life, normally. They're too different. Culture, language, I mean, preferences, personalities, food choices, they're too different. And yet here they are, they can't get enough of each other. They're meeting daily at the temple. They're meeting daily in each other's homes. What's changed? Who has changed them? Who is the common denominator? The Lord Jesus Christ. He's taken everybody from all these backgrounds and made them into one family. He alone broke down the social barriers. He alone broke down the cultural barriers. He alone broke down the language barriers and the religious boundaries. He became the source and reason for their continued devotion. A historian from Yale was writing about why Christianity succeeded in Rome when other religions didn't. He wrote that one key factor was because of their absolute inclusiveness and the fact that Christianity gave a sense of belonging where other religions didn't. 
if you're if you're a religion of philosophy, you appeal to the wise. You only appeal to the educated. Mystic religions, you appeal to the rich. Christianity erased all of the status, all of the wealth, all of the education. Everybody was welcomed because everybody had one single problem. No matter how educated and what fancy language they spoke, they all had an issue between them and God. A broken heart, a sinful heart needed forgiveness. And when they all received forgiveness from Jesus Christ, that was an equalizer. They were all morally bankrupt apart from him. And I think about this, you know, in our church too. Mark, you love mechanics. You love a particular kind of music, certain kind of foods and stuff. I can't fix anything without YouTube or anyone else helping me. We, live, we, we listen to different kinds of music. We like different kinds of foods. And yet you and I have a tremendous relationship. And it's all centered on Jesus Christ. And so instead of me feeling threatened by your gifts, or threatened that I feel inferior to you because I can't do certain things, I'm actually grateful because God actually says, I put him in your life to actually make up the lack that you don't have. So I don't have to feel threatened. I'm actually grateful because now I have a community to help me with the things that I can achieve in my own. And I think you can feel the same way for me. There are times where things I can offer you uh, that you don't possess in your own self in terms of gifts and graces. And so we don't have to be, feel threatened by one another. We're actually grateful for the community. And so now it's easy for us to hang out with one another because there's no intimidation. There's no trying to one-up one another in terms of smarts or, or education. And if we are, or if we do, that's called sin. That's called pride. And then we deal with it in the community. And we spur one another, say, I don't know if you should be talking like that or thinking like that. Put off the old self. Put on the new. The differences that might have repelled in the past now attract. And we can share these gifts and help each other where one another is lacking. All because of Jesus Christ, the power of his gospel, we can be brought into close relationship. So what are the four components? You could do a sermon on each four, all four of these. I'm just going to do it in five minutes and do four, just bang, bang, bang. One is the apostles' teaching. They dedicate themselves to the apostles' teaching. So at that time, there's no New Testament, but they do have the old. So the apostles are teaching the Christian congregations the Old Testament, now in proper context, because Jesus has taught them how to interpret it properly. So they're teaching the Old Testament, and they're teaching what Jesus taught them for the three years they've been hanging out with them, and how that applied to life. This is why Peter, later on in his own epistle, wrote, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that you may grow in respect to your salvation. The apostles' teaching was necessary for their growth to learn how to think differently, learn how to live differently, which makes sense. You've got people from all over the world, from all different backgrounds, all different ideologies. They all think they got it right and how to do life. And the apostle comes along, the apostles come along and say, listen, everyone, Jesus is our king. It's his way or the highway. It's his way or the highway. I don't care what your culture taught you, your grandma taught you, your dad taught you. If it doesn't line up with Jesus, it's gone. 
That's the apostles' teaching. And so we do the same here at Genesis House. We strive to honor the apostles, and we do the best we can to teach to the, the same accuracy as they would. In other words, if Peter came into the room this morning, or the Apostle Paul sat right beside Esther, those who teach up here would have to be able to say this, I am not changing a single word I'm, I'm saying because I'm scared of him or he's here. Whether Peter's present or not in the physical realm, you teach exactly the same way. So that's why when you teach up here, you, you, you're doing everything you can to make sure you're representing these apostles as accurately as possible because we believe it's foundational to our own growth. How about fellowship? The word uh, is partnership, contribution, or sharing in the Greek. So these people set up to be partners with one another, to contribute to one another, to share with one another. But here's what's really awesome. It was more than just talking about the Stanley Club playoffs. It was more than just talking about their favorite foods, although that would be part of it. There's a key text in 1 John 1, 3, where the same word is used. He says, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. So the common denominator again is Jesus. So as you share in life with Jesus and he, he changes your life, that puts you in fellowship with others. And so what does that tell you? That means that their fellowship time was sharing life about what it was like to live with, with him and what it was like to know him. This would have meant like being honest and open, sharing each other's burdens, talking about sins, talking about weaknesses, talking about fears and failures, and having the Lord minister within those groups. This is the place and time where they would spur one another on and encourage one another on outside of the temple and the apostles' teaching. So again, I'm all for um, the, the banter of, of joking around and sharing like life's pleasures, but true fellowship is centered around the person of Jesus Christ, talking about him, what he's done for us, and how he's changing us. The breaking of bread is actually quite simple. Some people think this is meals in the home, and it's not. It's actually to talk about communion. The breaking of bread is actually specifically communion. That's to be distinguished from eating meals in verse 46. 1 Corinthians 11.23 makes it clear. Paul said, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and we had given thanks. He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Communion, of course, has been awesome for building up the body of believers because it was a time for remembrance for all Christ had done. It was a time of worship and praise for offering them new life. Again, they couldn't boast at communion about their own status, their own wealth, their own education. Christ died for pride. This is not a place for boasting. This is a place to remember they were all saved by grace. An opportunity for thankfulness and prayers. And finally, prayer. They met for prayer. We've spoken a lot about prayer over the last year and a half, so I'm not going to spend much time on this, but I will say one thing. What I loved about this is that they recognized that prayer was way beyond just the personal life. They didn't have this mentality, well, I'll just pray by myself in my house, 
and by myself, like on a regular basis, and I'll avoid the church community. No, they, they thought it was important day by day to gather with other Christians to pray. They sought to be in community in their prayers. And if I've learned anything this year, it's been the power of that more than ever before. It's been incredible, as even just over the 40 days we gather in the park in the mornings, just the, the level of prayer and the way to change relationships with people has been so important. Again, we, like, we can continue to do that in our homes as well. So what's the result of all these spiritual disciplines? Well, here's what's amazing. The more they learned and the more they worshipped, the more their hearts began to change. I'll say that again. Their commitment to these disciplines, these components, changed their hearts. Verse 43, they had a sense of awe. A sense of awe. They could really, they really felt a sense of the Lord's presence at work as they looked around all that was going on. They weren't in awe because of the buildings, the church building or the, you know, the programs. They were in awe because of the supernatural character of what was taking place in the church. So they were in awe. The church was a place for healing. In verse 43, in verse 43, it says that signs and wonders were taking place. Signs and wonders were taking place through apostles. This is a place within the Christian community in which people's emotional, spiritual, and physical well-being was being set free. Set free from all sorts of ailments. And all we have to do is look back into Jesus' own ministry to see and guess what that would have looked like. But people being delivered on all planes, physical, emotional, spiritual, from what they had brought in to that relationship with Christ. It was a church of generosity. In verse 44, all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them all as anyone might have need. So again, a really generous church. There was no poor among them. Now, this was not communism. This was not socialism. They didn't sell everything they owned and put it in a pot. Clearly the case, this is clearly seen in these verses alone. It says they met in homes day by day. So if they sold everything, they wouldn't have a home to actually meet in. What they were doing is selling extra. Maybe they were, you know, they saw an influx of um, Arabs or, or Cretans or Romans come into the church from verses 7 through 11. And the moment like, the husband and wife sat around the, the kitchen table and said, listen, like, we don't really need our camper trailer anymore. We could probably just sell that and use it to like take care of the poor that are among us. Right? Do something as simple as that. Something that was extra. And this was obviously between them and God. And there was no legalism in it. This was not, there was not, not a forced issue. They were just, their hearts were moved to take care of the poor among them. So it's purely voluntary. One more thing. This was a joyful church. A joyful church. They were taking their meals together, it says in verse 46, with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God. They loved being around one another despite their 
diverse backgrounds. They didn't take credit for where they thought credit was due. They gave Christ all the glory. They praised Him for the changed lives and the supernatural things that were going on. And the result of being disciplined in these areas and having a change of heart was that they made a huge spiritual impact on those around them. Look at verse 47 as we conclude. It says they were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Clearly, the way they were living had an evangelistic effect on the community around them. As the people were gathering in the temple and saw these Christians in the thousands and how they were living and how the joy they had and the sense of awe and the miracles were taking place and their generosity and, and the love that was going around, the people wanted to know what, was, what this whole thing was about. As you were a neighbor with these Christians, as you saw day by day that your house just being poured into, people coming over all the time, and prior to Christ, that neighbor hardly had anyone in their home. The next thing you know, it's like a social uh, exit and entry sign, like a revolving door at a hotel. And people are, the neighbors are wanting to know what the heck is going on next door. Things have changed. There's no room to park anymore in front of their house. And as they hear about what's happening, they want to be part of this community. Their life on display impacted those around them. And later on in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, the church becomes 5,000, even though in chapter 2 it was 3,000. Lord, we give you thanks for the morning and this uh, another one of the sermon in the gospel series. Lord, we thank you that you modeled to us in the early church what it was to look like to have a strong community. And uh, again, even though it wasn't commanded or pres um, prescriptive per se, you do describe what you thought was the best for our growth. And you have us deeply in mind when you write these words are written. And so we want to seek to honor you in that. And we do take up Jeff's challenge to, to seek to make this more of a priority in our lives. Every single person has to just look inwardly and start with themselves and think, how can I impact the community for the better? As we make changes, Lord, may that be used to, to uh, impact the outside world the way the Acts Church did, where people longed to be with them and to know what was going on because of the, the way they were living and differently than the culture. Uh, Lord, I ask that Genesis House would be an inclusive community where centered around you and where people would have a sense of belonging. And if there's anything we're doing that we have to put off the old self and clothe differently, that you'd reveal it to us so that we can make the changes to, to love others and love you properly. So pray these things in Christ's name. Yeah.